I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison. And this is Podcast Without an Audience, where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. And we are tired. We are worn slam out. Girl, it's been a busy couple of weeks. July is always cuckoo bananas for us. Cuckoo bananas. But it, it's been really fun. It's been so great. So let's hear about your trip to Austin. I'll share about my bike ride. So I went to go visit my older sister. And little baby. Little baby, young Theodore. We call him young Theodore. He is young. Whole name. Young Theodore. Whole last name, birth certificate and everything. (laughs) No, Ray Ray started calling him young Theodore. And it's just I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't realize that was a Ray contribution to the family. Trademark. Um, No, but I think... So, my sister has lived far away from me pretty much since uh, we went to college. Right. When I was a freshman in college, she was a senior, and our schools were like 45 minutes from each other, so we spent a lot of time together. But pretty much since then, I don't really get to see her that often, and she just had a baby, and she got married, and... Um, and you got married, and... Yeah, and we're but we're far away from each other. Right. So, they, they lived in... Um, eastern north carolina and there there's like nothing around no so they overcorrected and like moved <laughs> their asses to austin completely bypassed yeah, where you like, are well and like a meaty like a like a middle ground of like you know stuff that's past open past 8 p.m and like they totally just overcorrected to austin but uh it was so fun Theo was so cute. We had such good food. Oh, good. We didn't do, like, a ton, which is perfect. I just wanted to, like, be in be the there. same room together, right? Yeah. So. Be weird, play games, hang mm-hmm. out. Exactly. There's nothing like sis- like sister trips. And oh, And this is absolutely. our first one in a long time, so. Good, 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 um, good. Yeah, but the flight was good. Everything was good. Nothing, nothing too crazy. Um... And then, you know, I had the Disney trip the week before, which was so fun. Wow. Um, I know. Disney and Universal. You I'm are exhausted. just all over the place. I could, I could sleep for like three days. I'm surprised we're even <laughs> recording today. What about you? You had your bike ride. I did. So you had Disney and Austin. And then as soon as you got back, I was headed for a different st- We have not been in the same state for like oh ages. God. Can you believe it? I can't. Um, I barely recognize you anymore. I'm so tan It's been now. so long. <laughs> I'm all buff from my bike ride. Right? Same. My legs are just jacked from <laughs> walking thousands of miles a day. Right, right. It's a fun time of year. Um, the The bike ride was great. I think one of the things I look forward to the most, there's this little girl. She did the bike ride for the first time when she was four years old, and now she's six and still like does this bike ride with her parents every year. And I just... Like, looking at a six-year-old riding 200 miles on a bike, I'm like, well, damn, if she can do it, surely I can. Sure as shit, you can. Sure as shit. So she's the person that, like, she's going to be the pace car, and I'm going to make sure I don't get too far behind her because she's also hilarious. Mm -hmm. So every year I look forward to seeing her. We loosely stay in touch throughout the year. Um, But she did not disappoint. She showed up this year and got just as muddy and gross and was just as silly as always. Oh, I love it. Um, So I know we talked about the bike ride last year because obviously you've done it. How many years in a row is this? This was year number six. Six. Holy shit, right? That's amazing. Yeah. So I started doing this bike ride um, 
the year that I was an intern for this organization in Maryland, and it's 184 miles. It's down the Potomac River, so basically from the panhandle of Maryland through West Virginia, kind of looking into Virginia, um, back into Maryland, and then into D.C. So we end in Georgetown. It's four days. It's for a great cause. It's for youth and foster care and um, services that help to prevent the need for foster care in that area. It's just a cause I believe in, and it's like 100 to 180 people each year, and Mm -hmm. I know most of them at this point. Oh, for sure. So it's kind of like a little family reunion. We all get together and joke and laugh and catch up. and You're trauma-bonded from 200 (laughs) miles. Um, But it's so funny. Like Every year I talk to someone that I haven't talked to in a previous year. Um, My brother goes with me. He's gone all but my first year. So it's just, it's a great time. Uh, my friends call it adult summer camp. Yeah, that's like, fair. It's adult sleepaway camp for four nights. Like we just go and party and hang out and happen to be riding bikes for an absurd amount of time. I love it. At least you're not like hiking or like like a triathlon where you have to swim Oh and gosh, stuff. no. This is like super slow and at my own pace, which is great. But the thing that happens at the end Like, on my ride home every year, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do all these bike rides. This is the new gear I want to get this year, and I'm going to get cute shorts for next year, and I make a list. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to put my bike away for a week so that I can recover, and then I'm going to jump back on this thing, and we are going to do all the bike rides this year. And never have I ever done a bike ride (laughs) outside of this one other than to train. Um, Were you trained? Did you train before this one? I did actually train before this Good one. Good for you. Like legit trained before this one. You not did? just I as in past know. years. Oh my yeah. God. No. So um, we've done Salem Lake, which isn't too far. Um, and it's like a seven mile loop. So if you do it two or three times, mm-hmm. you know, that adds up pretty quickly. And we found a cute little path through our neighborhood that's five miles. So we've oh, been perfect. doing a couple of those after school or work. Um, most days all the kids will get on the bikes and we'll just have at it. Yeah, that's awesome. That's good. That, I'm sure that made this trip easier. Yeah, it definitely did. So, um, highly recommend, you know, biking 184 miles. <laughs> highly recommend it. Well, good. Well, we'll I, touch base next year too about it. <laughs> I think it's so funny. I remember getting back my first year and coming and talking to you about it. And I was like, Allie, do you want to do this bike ride with me? And you're like, absolutely not. No, there's no chance in hell. I will ever do this bike ride with you. Don't want to not interested, but I hope that you'll continue to be my friend. Absolutely. (laughs) But I started asking other people in my life because surely someone else would want to do this bike ride with me. And I remember asking one friend, and you looked at me, and you were like, no one wants to do a four-day bike ride. And I was like, okay, you might be right. That's true. I used to be so mean. You weren't mean. Nobody wants to ride a bike with you, Karen. (laughs) Stop trying to make fetch happen. Well, I think that was the joke, too. And I was definitely, like, asking people who were not of like that mindset anyways who aren't super outdoorsy or like and you got to think about who you want to drive six hours yeah and then spend four days with it's i've learned it's a very specific type of person like i want someone that i don't have to entertain who doesn't feel like they want to talk the whole time like we can ride different speeds and that's fine so yeah you definitely gotta find your people when you're doing something like this oh 100 percent no, I'm so glad you had fun. And now we're back. 
with another episode of Podcasts Without an Audience, where we talk about psychology and history and how those things are intertwined. Or if they're intertwined, why they're intertwined. They're always intertwined. Something is always in common. I don't feel like we've ever gotten to the point at the end where we're just like, these two things literally have zero in common. We used to say today is the day of the not, but then we always come up with something. So it's right. Maybe we're geniuses. Unclear. (laughs) (laughs) Unclear. Um, But we can work with that. We can. And we will. Why don't you kick us off for this week? What is our psychology topic? So nothing sounds more ominous than when it has dark as an adjective in front of it. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Like dark clouds, dark Mm -hmm. magic, dark matter. Dark history with Bailey Syrian, my the love of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a pod crush? Yes. Yes. You know how she does the murder mystery makeup on YouTube? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. She's so good, too. Bailey, I know you're not listening, but. Shout out to you, Bailey. If you ever want to join us on this podcast, keep us posted. Um, The dark side, dark side of the moon, Mm -hmm. all very ominous. In this case, today on this episode, we will be talking about dark psychology. Okay. Okay. So, let me set the scene. I was scrolling on TikTok. Oh, my God. You and everyone else. Me and everyone else today and every day. Um, But I was looking for, like, some inspiration, some pod inspiration. And so, I was searching up just, like, random psychology topics. And I swear to you, I watched probably 30 videos. And over half of them were mentioned dark psychology. Hmm. So, um, it felt very, like, clickbaity. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, you know, dark psychology for getting what you want or dark mm-hmm. psychology, how to avoid people using dark psychology, how to recognize dark psychology, all of this stuff. I was like, what the hell is dark psychology? <laughs> Never heard of it. Um, so, if you'll remember on our Psychology of Dictators, which I think was our third or f- mm-hmm. fourth episode of this season, we talk about the dark triad. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? It was like the three personality mm-hmm. things. So, that topic in of itself still deserves its own episode. And everything I researched about dark psychology kept bringing up this dark triad. So, we're going to sort of talk about how they're connected. But genuinely, I had never heard this phrase, dark psychology, before. There was no class on on it in school. It never came up in abnormal psych. It doesn't come up in most of my meetings. Like, what the hell is this thing? And where did it come from? So I googled and googled to find the person who coined the term dark psychology. And it just kept turning up this dark triad again. So as a reminder, the dark triad is a theory of personality that was first published by Delroy Paulhouse and Kevin M. Williams in 2002, and it describes the three um, notably notable but non-pathological personality types, Machiavellism, subclinical narcissism, subclinical psychopathy. And they're considered dark because each contains malevolent qualities. So with this dark triad personality types, apparently those personality types are most likely to use dark psychology so we're getting Mm, somewhere like the dark web right so like the dark dark triad is going to use the dark web to find information on dark psychology wow 
So this is pop psychology. This is definitely pop psychology. So I finally found the definition. Quote, dark psychology is a human consciousness construct and study of the human condition as it relates to psychological nature of people to prey upon others as motivated by psychopathic, deviant, psychopathological, or psychopathological criminals that derives from a lack of purpose and general assumption of instinctual drives. This is a horrible quote. (laughs) Evolutionary biology and social sciences theory. All of humanity has the potential to victimize humans and other living creatures. While many restrain or sublimate this tendency, some act upon these impulses. Dark psychology explores criminal, deviant, and cyber criminal minds. Dun, dun. And that was uh, Michael Nucatelli, Mm. who has a doctorate in psychology. And he said that in 2006. So I thought I found my guy who coined the term dark psychology. Sure, sure. So I did a little digging. Um, And he is actually very interested in the world of cyberbullying and cyber crimes. He's a New York scientist or New York State licensed, a cyber psychology researcher and online safety educator. According to his website, iPredator. Oh, dot com. Dot com. I think it's dot com. Wow. He has a doctoral degree in clinical psychology from Adler University in Chicago. Quote, as the author of the theoretical construct termed iPredator, Dr. Nicotelli is a cyberbullying, internet safety, cybercrime, online predator, and cuber psychology educa- educator and investigator. Uh, this is one of those instances where commas come in really handy, because <laughs> I definitely thought he was commenting about being an online predator. <laughs> but there was no comma, fear not. However, this too became kind of a dead end. Um, I appreciate the definition, but this is not really his work. Got it. Okay. So I found another quote. Dark psychology seeks to understand those thoughts, feelings, and perceptions that lead to human predatory behavior. Dark psychology assumes that this production is purposeful and has a rational, goal-oriented motivation 99% of the time. The remaining 1% under dark psychology is the brutal victimization of others without purpose of intent or reasonably defined by evolutionary science or religious dogma. So it's not true psychology. There's nothing I could find that was research-based and peer-reviewed that definitively said, yep, we're going to study this. But that doesn't make it any less interesting. Dark psychology, in short, is perceived to be a set of techniques that allow people to manipulate their targets to their own advantage. So I did a quick research, or a quick search on books um, about dark psychology. And still, a lot of them sound like clickbait. But I wanted to read a few of the titles for you, just in case in the Mm -hmm. future you should get into dark psychology. Oh, I'm into it. So, first we have manipulation, techniques in dark psychology influencing people with persuasion, Mm. Um, NLP and mind control by Edward Benedict. In Sheep's Clothing, Understanding and Dealing with Manipulative People by George K. Simmon. Uh, 30 Covert Emotional Manipulation Tactics, How Manipulators Take Control in Personal Relationships by Adeline Birch. The 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene, 
and Dark Psychology and Manipulation, How to Become a Master of Your Own Mind and Influence the Action of Others by The Happiness Factory. Oh, wow. Yeah, I thought that one was interesting. Okay. So, among all of this digging, I finally gave up on who coined the term. We can go read these books. I didn't have time to read all of them prior to recording today. Because oh, you didn't? You're such a slacker? I'm a slacker. <laughs> and other things like riding 184 miles took priority. Sure. Um, but I did find some examples of what dark psychology is. And this is from Dr. Jason Jones. We're going to come back to him in a minute. But he identifies these examples of dark psychology. <clears throat> love flooding. Ooh. Call, also called love bombing. Yep. Which is compliments, affection, or buttering someone up to make a request. Yep. 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 We see this in new relationships all the time, especially with... Um, unhealthy partners. Unhealthy partners. Yep. Lying, which is, of course, exaggerating untruths, partial truths, and untold untrue stories. Love denial. So withholding affection mm-hmm. or attention. Mm-hmm. Withdrawal, avoiding the person or giving the silent treatment. And then these last few ones are especially interesting. Choice restriction. Hmm. So this means giving certain choice options that distract from the choice that you want someone to make. So it's like manipulating people to make whatever choice you want them to by not giving them all of the actual options. Got it. Uh, Semantic manipulation, which is using words that are assumed to have a common or mutual definition, yet the manipulator later tells you that they had a different definition and therefore a different understanding of the conversation, which very quickly, like you can see how that leads to gaslighting and manipulating. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we have a few other examples that came from a different website coercive control. So controlling. Um, by withholding money or freedom, controlling and monitoring your partner's moves, insults and isolation from a support network, which is abuse. Yep. Fatigue inducement. Oh, no. Super scary. Yeah. It's a form of manipulation that wears your victim down until they give in or surrender. And social influence, using peer pressure, authority, or conformity to persuade people to adopt certain attitudes or behaviors. So, basically what's happening is the study of dark psychology is looking at all of the ways that people abuse and manipulate others Mm -hmm. for your own gain. Right. Right. So, Dr. Jones says that these are often found in commercials, internet ads, sales tactics, managers' behaviors. If you have kids, specifically teenagers, they will experience these tactics as they experiment with their behaviors um, to try and get what they want and seek autonomy. In fact, covert manipulation and dark persuasion are often used by people you love and trust the most. Mm-hmm. Which feels like we have this big buildup to like, okay, what the hell is dark psychology? And it's the study of these things that mm-hmm. are used to manipulate you. But then on the flip side, it doesn't sound very dark or even really important necessarily when we look at commercials and internet ads and like the ways that kids 
or teenagers might manipulate. But I think it's because I don't believe that they're super ill-intentioned. Like, yeah, it's it's just about making money at that point. But I think the the point is that it force it allows somebody else to basically control and make choices for somebody else, right? Right. So right. that goes back to like the the uh, more scary things. Yeah. Yeah. And even you know planting those seeds for children as consumers. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Um. So you know what happened next in my research? What happened? I got stuck trying to figure out who the hell Dr. Jason Jones is. (laughs) What I learned from his website is that he equips leaders to energize, engage, and activate the best in themselves and their people. He's an organizational psychologist, keynote speaker, two-time best-selling author, and executive coach. I had to go all the way to his LinkedIn to get his educational background, but he supposedly got his PhD from the University of Oklahoma. I was definitely wormholing. It really bugged me that I couldn't figure out who coined this term. But, okay, so interesting that we've got this um, Jason Jones who seems to study dark psychology, or these topics at least, to use them to some advantage, right? He's at least trying to understand them, where they come up, how, when, why. Um, but he's also a public speaker, like, he, he also goes out and encourages people himself. So, back to the dark psychology traits. Um, all of them seem legit. There are ways that people can be manipulated, abused, and controlled. In fact, manipulation is in the name of one of these, semantic manipulation. You put all of these together, or even a few of them, and there's definitely an issue. Adeline Birch, um, who's one of the authors that we talked about a few minutes ago, said, quote, emotional manipulation methodically wears down your self-worth and self-confidence and damages your trust in your own perceptions. It can make you unwittingly compromise yourself to the point of losing your self-respect and developing a warped concept of reality. With your defenses weakened or completely disarmed in this manner, you are left even more vulnerable to further manipulation. Hmm. Um, so from everything I was finding out, this dark psychology seems to range from persuasion to convincing people to do or buy something by appealing to their emotions, needs, desires, um, or just like wearing them down until they do whatever it is you want them to do. All the way to quote unquote mind control techniques. Oh, I hate that. Yeah, me too. One website says that dark psychology includes hypnosis, brainwashing, cult indoctrination with the aim of changing people's beliefs, values, and behaviors through intense emotional and cognitive manipulation. And of course, this can all involve guilt, fear, shame, or any other negative emotion. Mm -hmm. So who is using these tactics? According to Dr. Jason Jones, they're most frequently used by narcissists, Checks out. Check, check. Sociopaths. Double check. Attorneys. Makes sense. <laughs> Politicians. Mm-hmm. Salespeople. Leaders. Public speakers, which is kind of ironic coming from him. And generally, quote, selfish people. <laughs> <laughs> That's a blanket statement right. right there. I mean, I think some of this, okay, like going back to 
love flooding, lying, maybe withdrawal. Withdrawal feels like a coping skill to me, more so than some of these others. Well, well, no, because, well, yes, and. Yes, and. Um, you can, you, I mean, that's basically withholding affection or attention as like a punishment. If it's intentional. I guess intentional withdrawing versus like, um, if we're looking at uh, fight, flight, and freeze, yeah, withdrawal thinking, being flight. I am thinking of all of these as being intentional. Okay, that's Cause fair. Because like, that's what dark psychology, I guess, is. Yeah, because like the love bombing thing, a lot of times people in new relationships just are obsessed with each other. And then at a certain point, the honeymoon phase is over. Right. And unless it's intentional, it's just like... There's nothing of substance. Right. Underneath love bombing. Right. Like, you're not building on something. It's just, like, an outpouring. I'm going to give you all of this love and make you feel great until I get what I want. Sometimes just the happy chemicals, and then I'm gone. Right. Or using it as a stepping stone to then get them under a certain guise to then manipulate them later. Right. Right. So, you're right. I guess we have to look at all of these as though they're very intentional. Um still there's part of me that's like as kids maybe even as adults do most or all people not lie from time to time to get the things that they want like what makes this i I think coupling it with multiple things absolutely like if you're lying on top of these other things for sure is an issue but lying just feels like an outlier here that's yeah I guess that is true. Um, And maybe it's the caliber of lie you're telling. Like, if you're telling your parents that you took out the trash, even though you didn't because you don't want to get out of bed to go take out the trash. mm -hmm. Technically, you're lying to manipulate so that you don't have to take out the trash. Right. I don't know. That's a really small example. No, but I I agree. You know, at what point? Well, there's variations of lying. What does Eddie Izzard say? She says, like... um, Lying one is saying, or no, I don't remember. I'm going to misquote this, but it's like saying you shag somebody when you didn't. And right. And there's right. like, you know, there's there's levels. Tears, yeah. Tears, there we go. And I guess there is for all of this too. Um, okay. So when and how is this used? And we've touched on a few of these, but dating is a really big one. And that's, I think, one place where it just kind of is super obvious, maybe. Um, through love denial, gaslighting, withdrawing, love bombing. The purpose is to get what you want from your romantic partners um, and wanting to cultivate a sense of power and control by manipulating their emotions. Then we have how is this used in the business slash workplace, like through marketing and sales, but also manipulating emotional reactions to have an edge in competitive environments using language to evoke responses of fear, disgust, or something else to help your company stand out from its competitors and increase sales. So manipulating people I don't know is ever ethical, but especially not in this way. Um, It can also be used in workplace governance to gain influence over others. Just general social interactions, I think, is mostly what we've talked about. Politics. Playing on people's fears, exploiting their vulnerabilities, brainwashing, creating division, 
trying to get people to act against their best interests, um, creating an us versus them mentality, which leads to division and conflict. Like someone who's really skilled at this quote unquote dark psychology is able to accomplish all of these things through presidential campaigns or um, social media and sharing misinformation in order to have a political outcome that they desire. And then in wartime, there's psychological warfare, propaganda, and other techniques that are used to influence the enemy's morale and their will to fight. So, mm-hmm. quote, throughout your life, you will encounter manipulative people who persuade using selfish purposes and for whom they have no qualms about causing harm. Generally, manipulative people have no qualms or compassion when they find a new victim for their plans, since they are individuals dedicated to exploiting other people's weaknesses to achieve their own benefit, regardless of what they have to do for it. That quote was from Jonathan Mind. I wonder how much of it is conscious. So that's what I was trying to figure out. And actually, I'm really glad you brought that up. So what I've got so far is that dark psychology is a pop culture, armchair psychoanalysis umbrella term for all the ways in which people manipulate and control other people and that anyone can use these tactics. The differentiating factor here is that sometimes it is people who do it knowingly and also subconsciously or unconsciously, Mm -hmm. which takes us to Freud. Oh, God. Don't all roads lead to Freud. (laughs) Sigmund Freud proposed the concept of the unconscious mind, which is where your desires and observations are hidden, but they are still influential in behavior. And we're going to save that and talk about it later. But dark psychology isn't all made up. The concept maybe isn't really well-defined, researched, or shared, um, though I have heard a lot about it lately. Basically, it's just a repackaging of what's already known, psychological principles that people are marketing to help other people advance their own personal lives for benef- to benefit themselves through, quote, dark tactics, especially if your personality is predisposed to using these tactics, consciously or unconsciously. The concept in itself is particularly interesting to so many people for two reasons. One, the ones who want to benefit from the study of dark psychology through, quote, learning to manipulate better or more intentionally. Or two, those who are trying to avoid being manipulated or better understand the ways that they have been manipulated before. Mm -hmm. So from that point, it seems really easy to get to why is this such an interesting topic? I think both in its obscurity, but also like there's so many books out there about it quote the truth is that everyone is practicing social influence in every social situation sometimes we're influencing and other times we're being influenced but the subtle forces of influence are present in all of our relationships so just as you are scrolling social media and being aware of dark psychology and all of the Um, tactics of manipulation that are being used, hopefully you're able to recognize them and now you have a new pop psychology way of thinking about them so that you can start to identify red flags for what they are um, as manipulation tactics. So that was my very quick down and dirty for dark psychology. Wow, so interesting. Manipulation. It's pretty wild. 
It is wild. I just, I think the term dark psychology is really intriguing. I, I had never heard of it. I TBH. I feel like we're going to hear a lot more about it mm-hmm. um, because a lot of influencers, especially the psychology influencers on TikTok, are at least throwing it out there. Yeah. It's almost like it's be it's like the negative side of unconscious or subconscious manipulation. Right. Well, it's also the the reverse of positive psychology, like strengths based and, you know, helping people to like if you have mutual goals you can help each other to achieve them this really looks at like the ways that people take advantage of other people and manipulate and coerce and the intentionality i think is the really interesting thing here is so many of these books that i was looking at the titles of are not like how to spot red flags it was all how How to to manipulate people how to use this that's so interesting and i I think i think some of it is looked at through a certain lens because i think that you know women use certain attributes about themselves to get what they want is that dark psychology i mean if it's done with intention for your own benefit and to others be damned I guess. Get a girl. Yeah. Get a girl. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know. Well, I, I think one of the things that is really interesting for me is there are certain personality types that are predisposed to using these tactics well. And, like, looking at where this is used, it's not just, you know, narcissists will use this in their interpersonal relationships. It's like this can be used in politics. It can be used in business. It can be used in every social sphere, Um, not just, like, romantic partnerships. You know, you can manipulate people at a micro or macro level, um, and people are really out there trying to get good at that. Yeah. And the personalities that are predisposed to being not only interested in this, or the the personalities that are predisposed to being interested in this are potentially the same ones that are predisposed to doing this really well. Mm. And I think that that's the scary part for me, is the intention and the lack of care for other people. Well, and how embedded is this in your personality? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, because, like, how, how often are you doing it? Because it's one thing about, you know, trying to get a free drink at a bar and, you know, plotting to ruin people's lives. Right. Right? I mean, you know, speaking of tears. but Sure, yeah. sure. And also, are you aware that, I mean, consciousness is, like, yeah, are you aware that this is what you're doing? Mm-hmm. At the meta level, are you aware that you're aware of this is what you're doing? So, right. like... Not only, okay, I am going to intentionally love bomb this person. Like, I am making the active choice that, like, I am going to shower this person with all the compliments and all the praise. But then are you aware that you're doing that because you are trying to manipulate them to get what you want? Right. Oh, that is scary. Yeah. Super interesting. Creepy. I'm super interested to see what our intersections are this week because... My topic is completely on the opposite end. Oh. <laughs> do you want to give us a spoiler before everyone already knows? What are you talking about? Because I don't about, know yet. 
And it's because we've gotten so many requests for this. <laughs> okay, I love that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> we're, we're talking about the history of nuns. <laughs> Perfect. Can't wait. People have just been knocking down my door being like, why have you not covered nuns? What the hell are they doing? Tell us about All where the they thing. came from. Exactly. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about some history. Amen. And we're back. Okay. Can I just say how excited I am and how much I love my topic for this week? I love when you are this excited for a topic. You I just, look so bubbly about it. I know. I just like to pick weird religious topics. It's just what interests me. Let's take it back to our roots. I love it. Your religious studies roots are showing. Beautiful. Today, I am talking about the history of nuns. Um, you know, who these incredible women are and what makes their experiences unique, depending on religion and location. First of all, I know what you're asking. What is a nun? <laughs> I thought you were going to say something. <laughs> I, so I was sitting here and I was like, cue sister act joke. No, cue uh, sound of music joke. Oh, okay. Got yeah, it. I went older, old school. Yeah, you really did. Old school nuns. Old school nuns. How do you solve a problem like Maria? Great question. Thank you. That so, was my first question is, so you looked at me and you're like, Whatever your first question was, I was like, oh, that wasn't my first question. (laughs) (laughs) So a nun is a woman who vows to dedicate her life to a certain religion. She typically lives under the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and lives in a monastery or convent with other nuns. In Christianity, nuns are found in the Roman Catholic um, sect, Eastern Orthodox, Lutheran, and Anglican traditions, as well as other Christian denominations. I did internationally, not know that. internationally, interesting. A lot I of no it depends idea. on the country that you're in. Yeah. Um, in Buddhist tradition, female monastics are known as uh, monkettes. No, uh, hikumi, um, and take several additional vows compared to their male counterparts. Nuns are most often in the Mahayana Buddhism, but have more recently become more prevalent in other traditions as well. Hmm. But let's talk about what we know. What we know nuns is the Catholic Church. Right. So what happens when you want to become a nun in the Catholic Church? Um, and there is not many. Not anymore. Have you ever seen a nun in real life? I know this is not in your notes. I'm just curious. No. Um, Nothing comes to mind. Okay. I saw one in Germany when I was there once. Oh, yeah. It was really strange. What was just, she doing? It was like three of them, and they were just walking down the road together, and they looked like they were having a really wonderful time. I know that they don't uh, leave alone most of the time. Right. They're in a, they're in a group. Yeah. Um, so if you want to become a nun, I'm guessing you have to show up and ask to become a nun. Uh, Yeah, correct. Oh, cool. And once you ask to become a nun, you have to undergo a period of testing the nun life. So it's a very, it's a lot more interactive process than I thought of, which I'm glad it is because it's such a, um, 
an intense way of life. Mm-hmm. It's very radical in mm-hmm. that way. So, yeah, you would kind of need to understand what you were signing up for. Yeah, you want to test, you know, try the milk before you buy the cow. So, this period can be from anywhere from six months up to two years, which is the trial period. Um, this time period is called the uh, postulancy if after this period they determine that it's it's a good fit for everyone involved, she will receive a habit of the order. So we'll talk about that. The habit is the traditional head covering that mm-hmm. I'm, I think we're all pretty familiar with, right? Right. We know what nuns look like. Uh, Sister Mary Clarence wore one in both Sister Act movies. There's your Sister Act reference. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, usually at this point, the habit is altered in some way that will differentiate her as a trial member. So which the- is version where you see the bangs yep, versus exactly. having the white band across of it. Yep. Okay. Uh, so at this point, she has not taken any vows yet. This is pre-vow. Um, the Once she's wearing her habit pre-vow, that is the second step, which also lasts between one to two years. Okay. So they're really like testing this thing out, making yeah. sure it's a good fit for everyone involved. Yes. I like that. I like that it's not, you know, this sign up and you sign your life away. It's genuinely, Mm -hmm. is this the right decision for you? Right. Or should you go and become a governess to seven children? Perfect. It's it's one or the other, you know? There is no in-between. Right. So after this stage is completed, she may now take her temporary vows. Temporary vows will get you through three additional years. And finally, you take your permanent solemn vows. Okay, so at this point, we're looking at about 10 years in. Yeah, depending, depending, anywhere between... Five to 10 years. Probably five would be, four to five would be like the minimum. Okay. So the structure of the vows that you take can differ from which sect you belong to. Um, In the Benedictine tradition, uh, nuns take vows of stability, which basically means that they'll remain members of that community like that religious community that's what stability is secondly they take vows of obedience to obey the church and its religious leaders um and they take a vow of life which encompasses the vow of poverty and celibacy no thank you (laughs) other groups take the threefold vows of poverty chastity and obedience these are known as the evangelical councils as opposed to the monastic views that were previous so it really just depends uh, i mean no nun anywhere is having sex except for one which we'll kind of get to um and the majority of them are don't own possessions correct uh it's really the intention is to give up uh the worldly worldly earthly things and kind of really focus on your faith and your relationship uh with god so, in some other orders, they, they take additional vows related to specific work or characters of the order. So, for example, to undertake a certain style of devotion, uh, praying for a certain thing. Like, those are additional vows that you could take, it, which can get as specific as, you know, we're going to... So, think about saints. You're, you're going to really call upon this certain saint to help you with this issue in your community something like that okay so you could be a nun who has your full habit you've taken the um what's it called 
your your vows your vows Mm -hmm. and then you can like be even more specific and pray to saint felicity or saint andrew or saint whomever saint pius the 10th you could so let's say uh this certain ordinance or this certain um church focused on poverty Mm -hmm. so they would take the vow of poverty but then they would also their one of their goals would be to help poverty in their communities oh i love that so it's a little bit more narrow as far as your focus goes sure yeah so uh cloistered nuns for example observe something called papal enclosure rules um, and their nunneries typically have walls separating the nuns from the outside world. So think, I mean, very, very... Walled in. Walled in, yeah, very exclusive. The nuns typically do not leave, um, except for, like, medical appointments and things like that. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, they may receive visitors, but you have to host them in these specially built parlors, which have either, like, a like a gate or like a wall, like a half wall that separates you from your visitor. So it's huh. it's very separate. So they're not going to play soccer with the kids in the neighborhood. Or have a music party, block party. Mm-hmm. Correct. Okay. Um, these nunneries are typically self-sufficient, earning money from selling products that they make or farm within the their community. Um, but again... All of the things that we're going to talk about today span, they're not necessarily modern nuns. So okay. these, these are these can go, go back in history. Um, I think to be competitive, well, first of all, everything evolves. Right. Um, and we'll kind of talk about the numbers of nuns and where, where it peaked and kind of where it's at now. But they have to evolve to be more inclusive uh, and, and give these women a little bit more freedom otherwise they're never going to get any anybody who wants to be a nun yeah so who leads the group of nuns mother superior and jesus no god yeah well yes (laughs) um a nun who is elected to head her religious household is termed an abbess um if the house is an abbey they're called an abbess okay um a prioress is what it's called if it's a monastery, or more Ooh. generally, they may be referred to as Mother Superior and styled, like, typically Reverend Mother. Right, right. So, all of the above. I can't believe how educational this tract was. Yes. It's, mm-hmm. yes. Write yeah. that down. Thank you, Disney+. Plus. <laughs> I do like Prioress. That's a really interesting... Prioress. Yeah, I haven't heard that one before. Yeah. So, and the difference between an abbot and a monastery is basically, like, where you are and what time period it is. Mm-hmm. You can have a male leader of the group called a canon or a canoness, which is the same thing, but, but a female. woman. Uh, these leaders have two options. One, they can take the traditional religious vows where they refrain from, you know, all of the things, or they can refrain from taking the vows completely and therefore be free to leave the property, marry, um, own property, um, etc. Um, now, this option has been phased out over the years, which is probably why it doesn't sound familiar. Um, nobody can own property or, I mean, people can leave the walls, but... Right. Um, 
It's that vow of poverty thing. Mm-hmm. The traditional dress for women in religious communities consists of a tunic, which is tied around the waist with a cloth or leather belt. Over the tunic, some nuns wear a scapular, which is a garment of long, like it's a long, wide piece of woolen cloth worn over the shoulders uh, with an opening for the head. Some wear a white wimble and a veil. The most significant and ancient aspect of the habit is the wimble. Um, some orders, such as in the Dominican Republic, they wear a large rosary around their belt. Um, Benedictine abbesses wear a cross or a crucifix on a chain around their neck. Hmm. So, some people dress up like nuns for Halloween. Right. Which, I have no, I don't know that I have an opinion on it. Probably not. Probably don't do that, though. Um, but... They'll, they ha- they often come with like a cross or a rosary. And all of that is really specific to where you are. All of that checks out. So after a second, um, after the Vatican held a council way, way back in the day, this is where they decided that many religious institutes could choose their own uh, regulations and no longer wear the traditional habit. Um, and some of them did away with some of the more traditional pieces. Catholic Church canon does state, quote, religious are to wear the habit of the institute made according to the norm of proper law and as a sign of their consecration and as a witness of poverty. So part of that is saying that they will just abide by the ordinance of their particular church. Right. In the United States, nuns and sisters played a major role in American religion, education, nursing, and social work since the early 19th century. In Catholic Europe, convents were heavily endowed um, over the centuries and were sponsored by the aristocracy. So all the rich people were funding the churches. Do you remember over COVID? Um, when we were first like talking about recording the podcast, I was really into the show called The Midwife because yes, I do. nothing ever happened. Like it was just a feel good show. And, you know, later seasons got a little bit more dark or whatever. But the the early shows um were just great. And it was about this, I guess, nunnery in London and all the nuns were midwives Mm -hmm. and I thought that was a really cool idea this took place in like the 40s I think um but so interesting to like figure out the different roles that they would have had and all of that so 100% well and 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 nuns were not as educated as like monks were for example but like monks were doctors and shit really you know they could read and you know knew about germs right right stuff i don't know if nuns knew about germs i'm sure probably by the 1940s they did yeah oh yeah 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 Yeah. Uh, when they were midwives right but just thinking about like how here they were social you said social workers and teachers Mm -hmm. and all of that so they've had like this really pivotal place in society but no one ever knew much about them oh 100 percent at least not around here and it's really interesting how the catholic church was kind of built up in in, in the Americas because there weren't very many American Catholics and there were certainly no aristocrats. So religious orders were founded by 
entrepreneurial women mm-hmm. who saw a need in their communities and like an opportunity. Um, and so they began to build these and they were staffed by devout women from poorer families. Uh, the numbers grew rapidly from 900 sisters in 15 communities in 1840, mm-hmm. 50,000 in 170 orders in 1900, and 135,000 in 30 different orders by 1930. Wow. Yep. So starting in 1820, the, the sisters always outnumbered the priests as of 1820 and after. Right. Um. The numbers peaked in 1965, surprisingly. I think that's interesting. That is interesting. And that works for my show, too. So, in 1965, they had 180,000 nuns. Worldwide or? In in the U.S. In the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, in 2010, the numbers plunged to 56,000, which checks out, in my opinion. Checks out. Um. Many women left their orders and in the early 2000s and kind of since 1965, and it was harder to replace them. Um, in Canada, nuns have played an important role in Canada as well, especially heavily in the Catholic Quebec area. Mm-hmm. Um, outside the home, Canadian women had few domains which they controlled. Um, an important exception came with Catholic nuns, especially in Quebec. Stimulated by the influence in France, the popular religiosity of the Counter-Reformation, new orders for women began appearing in the 17th century. In the next three centuries, women opened dozens of independent religious orders, funded in part by dowries provided by the parents of young nuns. Which is interesting. I don't know how that would work. I guess since they weren't going to be spending the dowry, no, they received the dowry. So I'm not sure how that works. They received the dowry? Well, they wouldn't receive the dowry, but they were, they, maybe it was, I don't know. But there was a dowry involved. There was a dowry involved for the, for the young ladies. Um, and the orders were specializing in charitable works, including hospitals, orphanages, homes for unwed mothers, and schools. Prior to women becoming nuns during early modern Spain, aspired nuns underwent a process. So women who wanted to become nuns. The process was um, ensured by the Council of Trent, which King Philip II adopted within Spain. Um, And he lived from 1556 to 1598. So this was in the long, long time ago machine. King Philip II acquired the aid of the Heremite order to enjoy that enjoy 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 ensure that monasteries abided by the decree of the council of trent this changed the way in which nuns would live one edict of the council of trent was that female monasteries be enclosed in order to limit nuns relationship with the secular world enclosures of monasteries during this time was associated with chastity because we have to control women's bodies because women and men aren't capable of doing so themselves i can't control myself i can tell i am (laughs) uncontrollable (laughs) another decree issued by the council of trent was the religious devotion to be true and voluntary 
a male clergy member would ask the aspiring nun if whether or not their vocation was, quote, true and voluntary in order to ensure no enforced uh, conversion. So you remember that uh, Catherine King Henry's first wife, who Mm -hmm. he divorced, Mm -hmm. he sent her to a nunnery involuntarily to be a nun. (laughs) But this whole thing was about how being a nun was supposed to be voluntary. Correct. Because we had to, like, have a goodness of fit check for at least four to five years. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, we w- it's called course. consent. Look it up. <laughs> but of course, it's going to happen involuntarily. Right. Um, so that was that was a new thing. They're like, hey, you want to be a nun? Are you sure? Are you doing this voluntarily? Right. And she was like, I guess. There's not really tons of options for me. But at least I won't have men bothering me. But maybe <laughs> I will. So maybe I do want the fence so that people, you know, I need a little bit of space. Yeah. To be considered a nun, one must have the economic means to afford the, the convent dowry. During this time, convent dowries were affordable compared to secular marriages between a man and a woman. Typically during early modern Spain, many nuns were from elite families who had the means to afford the covenant dowry. And so it's the families paying the monasteries to get rid of their children. That makes more sense. That makes to more me. sense. Yeah. Yep. Um, because if you've got the money and it's going to go somewhere and you said that was cheaper than like a secular marriage. Yeah. 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 Cause they're like, well, what are we going to do with all these women? And the church was like, we'll take them at a discount. Listen, this one dad who has seven daughters mm-hmm. is like, I can afford for exactly three of you to get married or for all seven of you to go into yeah. the convent. You pick your favorite one and that one gets to go to college. <laughs> So, monasteries were economically supported through these convent dowries. Convent dowries would be waived if the aspiring nun had an a artistic ability benefiting the monastery. Maybe she was a singer in a band <laughs> in Vegas, perhaps? Uh, a Las Vegas showgirl? Or a headliner? Correct. She would really have to be a headliner, probably. She, I mean, listen... That they don't want just the backup singers. No. So once an aspiring nun had entered the convent and has the economic means to afford the dowry, she undergoes the process of apprenticeship known as the novitate period. Novitate period. So this kind of goes through something s- similar with in the U.S. through the, the the Catholic Church, one to two years, and then you pass on, pass on. Do you want to know what a choir nun is? Uh, Dolores Van Cartier. <laughs> did you look up her name? Are you? Did you remember her name? Yeah. <gasps> Good for you. Sister Act is one of my comfort movies. It's I one of the ones that. I go to like every couple of months. I love it. Um, like, and I tend to send my brother like a, a Snapchat whenever I'm watching Sister Act 2 and it gets to his favorite part. Which is? Which is when the little boy hits that super high note. Uh-huh. Yep. It's everyone's favorite part. Cry every real. time. Amen. Um... Also, Lauren Hill is a goddess. Also, amen. I yep. second that. Um, so, Dolores Van Cartier is so, a choir nun. So, choir nuns were ones who did the final vote to make sure they're like, yes, we accept this person after they've done all of these different variations of becoming a nun. They were then voted on at the end by the choir nuns. Choir nuns were not the nuns in the choir, unfortunately. Well, that's disappointing and slightly misleading. I would I would agree. I vote that we change their name. Okay. 
but you so the choir nuns were usually from elite families and they held office within the monastery mm-hmm. um and so, they're so like they jury were jury nuns kind of they're just leadership basically okay. um and they you know held authority and and then they they voted um they were also given the opportunity to read and write we love that for them mm-hmm. what a great journey All right. So in the Eastern Orthodox Church, there is no distinction between a monastery for women and one for men. In Greek, Russian, and other Eastern European languages, both domiciles are called monasteries, and the people who live there are monastics. Oh. In English, however, it is acceptable to use the terms nun and convent for clarity and convenience. But I think that language is so interesting. I like that monastics is gender inclusive. I love it. Me too. Orthodox monastics do not have distinct orders as in Western Christianity. Orthodox monks and nuns lead independent spiritual lives, which is fascinating because we've been talking about all these these different collectives, basically, Mm -hmm. and these are, are independent people. Interesting. There may be slight differences in the way a monastery functions internally, but there are some simple differences uh, depending on the depending on the location. So we talked about the abbess. That's the spiritual leader of the convent, and her authority is absolute. Right. And these and these um, in the Orthodox religion, in Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Um. Because remember, the other one, ha- men could also lead the church. This is this is not the case. Okay. Eastern Orthodox. So we have gender-inclusive language for all the people who live there, but not in terms of leadership. It has to be a woman. Correct. So no priest, bishop, or even patriarch can override an abbess within the walls of her monastery. I'm not mad at that. Hell yeah. I'm actually pretty proud of that. Let's keep that rolling. Abbots and abbesses rank in authority equal to bishops in many ways. Orthodox monastics in general have little or no contact with the outside world, especially family. We forget about family, but they can't talk to their family. The pious family um, whose child dedicates their entire uh, lives to enter into the monastic practice understands that their child will become dead to the world and therefore be unavailable for social visits afterwards. Wow, so you can't write letters, Mm -mm. there's no phone calls, Mm -mm. no carrier pigeons. No, no owls, nothing. Wow. I know. So we've talked about Christianity a lot. What I didn't realize when I went in to go do my research was that, like we talked about earlier, that monks also are within the Buddhist religion as well. So let's talk about Buddhism. Please. All Buddhist traditions have nuns, although their status is different among Buddhist countries. The Lord Buddha is reported to have allowed women into the religious order only with great reluctance. He predicted that that move, allowing women, would lead to Buddhism's collapse after only 500 years. So, as opposed to the religion flourishing for a thousand years, he's saying, I'm going to let women in reluctantly, but just know that our religion might end at 500 years because of this decision. Sure. Sure? 
Why not? <laughs> That's um, one way that a person could see the destruction of their religion. Women. Sure. Um, Eve did it to Adam. Okay. That's the best I got. Okay. Uh, this prophecy occurred only in, only once in the religious canon, and it's the only prophecy that involves time. So it does lead some of the experts to believe that it was a later later added. So it, it's really, I mean, it's the only one that references time at all. So that's a really good indication that somebody went back in. It was like, here we, we go. All, yeah, yeah. I wonder why it is. So I, I never once considered like females in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Like monks you see in movies and TV shows and like they're talked about mm-hmm. pretty frequently. Why do we never hear about women? Votes for women! Votes for women. (laughs) Fully ordained Buddhist nuns um, have more religious rules than their monk counterparts. And they take other vows. So the important vows are the same, however. They just have some some extra ones. As with monks, there is quite a lot of variation in nuns' dress and social covenants between Buddhist cultures and Asia. So in Thailand, a country which never had a tradition of fully ordained nuns. Okay, so let's jump to Taiwan. The relatively active roles of Taiwanese nuns were noted by some studies. Researcher Charles Brewer Jones estimates that from 1951 to 1999, when the Buddhist Association of the ROC organized public ordination, female applicants outnumbered males by about three to one. He adds, quote, all my informants in the area considered nuns at, at least as respected as monks or even more so. In contrast, however, in other areas, the that female clergy were viewed with some um, suspicion by society. She reports that while outsiders did not necessarily regard their vocation as unworthy of respect, they still tended to view the nuns as social misfits, end quote. Which, that is fascinating. Super. They're just trying to have their own spiritual experience. experience. Uh, Wei Yi Chang studied the luminary order in southern Taiwan. Cheng reviewed earlier studies which suggested that Taiwan's Zahajo tradition has a history of more female participants and that the economic growth and loosening of family restrictions have allowed more women to become nuns. Based on the studies of the Luminary Order, Cheng concluded that the monastic order in Taiwan was still young and gave nuns more room for development and more mobile believers helped the order, which makes sense. Yeah. Go. Good job. Spread the word. Yeah. All that stuff. Um, Hokji in 747 in Japan was established by the consort of the emperor. It took charge of the principal convents, performed ceremonies for the protection of the state, and became the site of pilgrimages. Aristocratic Japanese women often became Buddhist nuns, in the pre-modern period. Originally, it was thought that they would not gain salvation because of the five hindrances, which said that women could not attain Buddhism, or Buddhahood, excuse me, until they changed into men. However, in 
1249, 12 women received full ordinance as priests. Hell yeah. Good for them. I love that. About damn time. So I think it's really interesting to see how, um, you know, nuns are kind of looked at by the communities, where their place is in the communities. And I do think that um, the reason I wanted to cover this as a history topic was just to talk about how things have changed through time Mm -hmm. and kind of sit with where they are now. One of the things I find especially interesting about this topic is how much... Um, so, like, the American experience of nuns, it certainly is not a realistic representation in any of the sister acts. However, like, we have this representation, and it's relatively positive. And then in, like, European nuns, we have Sound of Music as a representation. We have Call the Midwife as some representation that's a little bit more recent. But nuns around the world... And in so many other religions, I had no idea. I think that that's the piece that's most fascinating for me and that they all kind of have about the same experience in terms of the vows that they have to take and the processes and the female leadership Mm -hmm. is just really, really interesting to me. So I can see why you wormhole here. I agree. So that, my friend, is the history of nuns and I hope you enjoyed it. I did. Thank you. Beautiful. So, how do these topics intersect? Huh. Okay. So, sure. I think that the idea of nuns and what they stand for is the opposite of dark psychology. Ooh. Okay. So, the intention of nuns is to, in good faith, um, you know, spread their beliefs and also make their communities a better place. Oh, I love that. Um, mm-hmm. What a happy intersection. Woo! Man, that was a good note. Um, every action has an equal and opposite reaction, right? Mm-hmm. You put out dark psychology into the world and you get back nuns. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Perfect. Let's just leave it at that. Let's do it. All right. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you haven't followed us on Instagram, what are you doing? Give us a shout. If you would like to or feel so inclined, join our Patreon. You can click the link, click the link in our Instagram uh description bio. Bio link, link in our bio. Link tree. Link tree. What? Do we have a link tree? I think we have a link tree. What's a link tree? It's like you click on it, it takes you to all the links for all the things. Oh, yeah. Sure. Sure, 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 sure. Jack Wowza may have set that up. I'm sure he did. He's an angel. Um, But, yeah, thank you guys so much for going on this journey with us. I hope you guys had a wonderful um, 4th of July, by the way. Uh, And we will see you guys next week. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcast Without an Audience. Find us on social media at pod without an odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanaud at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.